intimacy requires at least three things. Proximity, vulnerability, reciprocity. Distance must be crossed, one's true self must be revealed, and both parties must desire to engage. Relational closeness cannot happen without two willing participants. This is a story about what's possible when the God of the universe longs for connection. The absurd, breathtaking potential of deity bent on love. But this is also a story about what's impossible when human beings opt for safety over him. The absurd, heartbreaking tragedy of humanity unwilling to step toward the cloud. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Mount Sinai, Horeb, as it's also called, is a collage. 7,495 feet of interwoven rock, alkaline-formed feldspar, nepheline, a smattering of micas, olivine, and lucite, and plutonic rocks, too, veining their way through the fray, coarse crystalline artifacts of volcanic activity, magma's calling card. A press of shapes and textures, orientations and colors, smooth and jagged, curved and knife-straight, powdered and exposed, hulking and minute, vertical and diagonal and horizontal, chestnut and umber and sorrel and cinnamon, all at once. It is a great monolith, but it is not monolithic. The best way to acquaint oneself with Sinai's unexpected complexity is to do what Moses is doing now, climb it. Suddenly, what from a distance might have appeared to be a monochrome, homogenous pile of stone proves, as your feet trod its hidden paths, as your fingers tug on its outcroppings, as your eyes sweep its features and your mind evaluates its myriad peculiarities, the quintessence of complexity. Steeper now, as Moses nears the summit. The rocks tip up and demand a more undignified approach. Scrambling, the 80-year-old Moses pushes on, further up and further in. Below, the Israelites' tents sprawl in the shadow of the mountain. The children whisper, perhaps, trying to guess which thorn bush might be the bush. He's told them the story by now, surely. The adults, though, whisper as to whether there even was a bush. How can we know? We have to take his word for it. Why does Yahweh only speak to him? How are we to be sure Moses is relaying the messages correctly, or that there are messages? 
Their questions waft into the air, while in the distance, the rock spring splashes, constant and true. On the mountain, Yahweh calls to a breathless Moses. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Moses wonders, perhaps, why this conference could not have taken place in the tent of meeting thousands of feet below. But Yahweh continues. Tell them, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses is smiling excitedly, surely. It's time, time to become a nation. Their journey must be coming to an end. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The elders mill about, wondering what purpose Moses has in gathering them like this. Hypotheses abound, of course, swapped in hushed voices that quickly quiet when Moses climbs into view and raises his hands. Yahweh has spoken, and these are his words. He recites the divine message, waits for the offer to sink in waits, too, for an indication that the elders accept the terms. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then... Moses does not have to wait long, though. The Hebrews are nodding to one another and to him. Yahweh's treasured possession? Yes, yes, of course. We will, comes one voice, and then more. We will, yes. We will do everything Yahweh has said. More nodding. Moses smiles. Good. The old man leaves them at the foot of the mountain and climbs once again to deliver the people's answer, as Yahweh instructed. But as soon as Moses withdraws, it seems that a few of the Hebrews have reservations. And with Moses gone, they're keen to share their concerns in lowered tones. Think, though, what have we agreed to? To obey commandments that only Moses can hear? And we just take that on faith? Yes, exactly. Can we trust him? Words like these hissed with serpentine stealth. Nothing travels faster than a whisper. On the mountain... The all-seeing, all-hearing Yahweh speaks to his servant and offers a solution to a problem Moses is not even aware of. I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. But they agreed to the covenant. Moses tells Yahweh the people's response, how they were quick to say yes to his terms, but Yahweh knows 
Sometimes a quick yes betrays a failure to count the cost. Two, the Israelites need an assurance that Moses is, in fact, a conduit of divine will. And so, instructions. Yahweh tells Moses how to have the people prepare for what is about to happen. Does the old man try to hide the surprise on his face as Yahweh details the plan? Morning. On any other day, desert larks, golden orioles, and crag martins would be fluting their calls, heralding the sun's arrival. On any other day, the sky would wash pink, and then orange, then blue. But this is not any other day. There is no birdsong. The sky above the Hebrew camp, above the mountain of God, is the color of an inkwell. Mount Sinai is mantled in cloud. Below, the people of Israel stare in wonder. Their clothes are freshly laundered, and they have abstained from sexual relations for three days, all in obedience to Yahweh's word delivered by Moses. Families huddle in their tents, but many cannot help peeking out at the sky, at the mountain. Lightning spiders across the cloud, superheating veins of the atmosphere and sending molecules of nitrogen and oxygen shooting outward faster than the speed of sound. No sooner do the flashes appear than they vanish, the air cooling immediately and yanking the molecules back into place. Thunder, the bellowing result of this disturbance, shakes the ground beneath the people's feet. How long till we hear the blast? They're all wondering it. Moses said they're to assemble and follow him to the mountain when they hear the trumpet call. They wait. How are they to hear a trumpet over all this thunder? And then their question seems absurd. A screaming blast tears through the settlement, rattling their bones and opening wide the eyes of their children. Are we going out there? But that was the command. One flap draws open. A cautious soul emerges. Then two, five, seventeen. A growing flock. A tentative migration. Moses leads the way to Sinai. That cloud. No, that's not a cloud. The vapor has been replaced by a vast chimney of smoke. The mountain, the entire mountain, is engulfed in flame. Fire, like nothing they've seen before, pummels the mountain, making the great mass tremble and shudder in the raging inferno. Black fumes surge from the rock. All of Sinai transfigures into a violent furnace powered by nothing more than the presence of Yahweh. Is this what the column of fire could be? Meanwhile, the trumpet blast has not stopped. It shrieks now louder and louder, bringing hands to ears and tears to eyes. 
Men and women stand nervously now around the foot of the mountain, taking care not to transgress the boundary markers. Poles with lines stretched between them, or swords driven into the ground at intervals, or simply a line drawn in the sand, creating a border they have been warned not to cross. This is for your protection, Moses said. Anyone who touches any part of the mountain is to be put to death, stoned or shot with arrows, so that their executioners do not have to touch them. Is this presence contagious? Then Moses speaks to the mountain. No one hears, of course, and they would not have known if not for that raised staff, but after Moses speaks, a deafening sound issues from the smoke. Is that a response? He does speak to Moses. Gasps now, screams even, as Moses, his robe whipping around him into the gale, steps over the boundary marker and moves into the smoke. Inside the maelstrom, Moses retraces his path to the top of the mountain. Does he shield his eyes, wrap a piece of his robe around his mouth and nose to keep from inhaling debris, struggle against the hurricane-force wind? Or is he in the eye of the hurricane, encapsulated by Yahweh's cupped hands as the storm boils around him? His knees must ache, this octogenarian ascending seven and a half thousand feet once again. But perhaps the circumstances are a sufficient distraction from joint pain. At the summit, Moses listens as the voice speaks. Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see Yahweh and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach Yahweh must consecrate themselves, or Yahweh will break out against them. Break out against? Moses shakes his head. No, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us to put limits around the mountain and to set it apart as holy. But Yahweh insists on underscoring the danger, driven by his desire to keep the people safe. The priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to Yahweh, or he will break out against them. But then, an invitation. Bring up Aaron, the seventy elders of Israel, and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. This group is to accompany Moses to a certain altitude, and then Moses is to continue on further into Yahweh's presence without them. Moses nods, descends, and after the hour's long journey, relays Yahweh's words to the people. Do not transgress the boundary. Do they wonder why, if touching the mountain is bound to bring certain death, Yahweh invited them here in the first place? 
Why not let them stay safe in their tents? Why not shout and storm and roar from a distance? Why call them close if, if coming close can kill them? Good questions, all. But this conflict is at the center of Yahweh's heart. Bringing together a holy God and fallen humans is no simple exercise. He's been tending to it since Eden. And the plan they're in the midst of now will continue all the way through Gethsemane. Garden to garden. Relationship restored. Some moments are months in the making. A surprise birthday party, a long-awaited trip, a wedding. Other moments' anticipation stretches not across months, but years. A child finally conceived and born. A health breakthrough. A calling crystallized. This moment, well... Yahweh has been looking forward to this moment for millennia. With Aaron and the others waiting a ways down the mountain, Moses listens as the creator of the universe unveils the path to proximity. These terms, this way of living, will serve as the answer to the question of how the sinful Hebrews and their holy God will coexist these instructions will serve as honey, binding the oil and vinegar of deity and humanity, an emulsifier stabilizing the union of otherwise difficult to combine elements. You shall have no other gods before me. Images of Amun-Ra and Anubis and Hathor, Horus and Isis and Kanum, Baal and Ashtaroth and Anat flash in Moses' mind. He nods, and Yahweh continues. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I... Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, reckoning the crime of fathers with sons to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Moses swallows. You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh, your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Moses smiles, perhaps, at this one. A day of rest every week, mandated by God. How luxurious. What a strange command. The seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor any male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Rest for our servants, our animals, travelers and immigrants. 
The river of Yahweh's grace will not be bounded, evidently, by the banks of the Israelite nation. It will spill beyond these men and women, refreshing any and all who draw close enough to get splashed. And then the focus shifts to Israel's relationship with Israel. Honor your father and your mother, the voice continues, so that you may live long in the land that Yahweh is giving you. You shall not murder. Do Moses' cheeks flush with this one? And what if we have? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Not covet? Who has not looked at what their neighbor has and... and this is reaching beyond action and into the state of the heart. What sort of law book is this? Yahweh smiles. This is not just a set of rules. This is a charter, the beginning of a different kind of kingdom, a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And this law will move the people of Yahweh in the direction of a coming king. Meanwhile, at the foot of the mountain, Yahweh watches the people react to his presence. The quaking stone, the fire and the smoke, the lightning and thunder, the trumpet blast, it's all terrifying. Noise and fury and blinding light, it, it's too much. The boundary markers set up to keep the Hebrews from drawing too close prove unnecessary. Men and women are moving back, away from the perimeter away from the mountain, away from him. Like an abused dog flinching at the gentle touch of a new master, like a cave dweller shielding her eyes from sunlight, like a defiant teenager railing at his parents' expressions of love, Israel sees the beauty of a mountain aflame, the wonder of the ground beneath their feet quaking with presence, the power of a god come close, and they recoil. By the time Moses returns from the summit, they have gone back to their tents. Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, a group of them tells him on behalf of the others. But do not have the deity speak to us, or we will die. Moses' face falls. Is Joshua one of these adamant voices? Hur? Gershom? No, no, do not be afraid. A reassuring smile. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. He tries to help them understand 
It tries to invite them on the journey he's making, the direction of intimacy with the divine. But there is no change in their faces, no look of happy realization, no courageous step toward the mountain. The people remain at a distance. Moses, though, cannot stay away. He turns and, with bright eyes, walks toward the thick darkness and streaking light, marking the presence of his God. Yahweh has more to say, and Moses must hear it. As the sun sets and the boundary markers around Sinai stand untouched, what does Yahweh feel? As the Israelites lie down in their tents, far from the cloud of presence, their hearts full of fear and not much else. As bedtime retellings of the sea crossing are replaced by parents warning their children not to go near the mountain, does Yahweh shed a tear? Perhaps. But as the 80-year-old shepherd grabs the throbbing stone of Sinai and climbs through the smoke once again, the God of Abraham nods. One is enough. One heart fixed on him. One calling accepted on behalf of a wayward, broken people. One shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This can change everything. Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to Storm Rising, the eighth part in this season's telling of the Exodus story. If you enjoyed this episode, let me remind you of two things. One, there are people out there who have never listened to Holy Ghost stories. Can you believe it? Some of them know these stories, but they've never experienced them. It's tragic. So, Here's the second thing. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or rate the show on Spotify, those people are more likely to check this show out because a bunch of solid reviews says to them, hey, stop scrolling. This podcast is worth your time. Uh, texting a link to a friend works pretty well, too. So this is your reminder not to hoard all of this Old Testament goodness. Share it with your people. Leave a review. Let's give more folks powerful moments with the God who wants so deeply to be close to them. This week in the latest, uh, that's the newsletter I email every couple of weeks to the serious Holy Ghost Stories listeners. I'm letting you in on why my chronology of this section of Exodus might differ from yours. Uh, I'm sharing my go-to emulsification technique, and I'm including an account of my middle-of-the-night climb up Mount Sinai last summer in preparation for these episodes. 
Oh, and I'm unveiling something I'm up to this fall that I hope will be an incredible resource for families. Um, I can't wait to tell you about that. If you're not already getting the latest, you can sign up for free at holyghoststories.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. And speaking of free, you've probably noticed that Holy Ghost Stories itself is free to anyone and everyone around the world who listens. That's not because it doesn't cost money. It's because so many people who believe in this work support it financially. This episode, for instance, was brought to you by the beautiful generosity of Lanny and Joni Lehman. Debbie Sluss, Whitney Schwartz, Mike Long, Penny Langston, Tamara Pollock, Patricia Daggett, Kimberly McLean, Diana Tuatagaloa, Mary Beth Robinson, Callie Myers, Marilyn Miller, London Gerhardt, Paul Mahan, Trina Greer, Scott Gerhardt, Autumn Hansen, Julie Billingsley, Whitney Burgess, Hilda Castillo, Landrum, Gay Pepper, Eve Gerhardt, Jamie McCowan, Jane Foy, Stephen Carazel, Mark Edgar, the team at Quizworks in Sydney, Australia, and Mitch and Allison East. Thank you, every one of you, for being a part of sharing this memory of Yahweh's with the world. Thank you also to the patrons of Holy Ghost Stories over on Patreon. These folks give every month as partners in kingdom storytelling. Every single one of you patrons is precious, and we're all grateful for the raconteurs, the super generous heroes of monthly support. Joshua, Hildy, David, John and Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Travis, Steve, Sam, Daniel, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Elizabeth, Rick, Derek, Jeff, Maddie, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. You guys are the river of Yahweh's grace splashing all over me. Thank you. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. <laughs>